0: it's tech Byter worldwide with bill plin the latest on programs and policies helpful hints and a bit of occasional nonsense all in more or less plain english podcast number 786 for the first of april 2022 this week my wife and i both purchased new computers in march Mine was seven years old and ineligible for Windows 11. Hers was five years old, ineligible for Windows 11, and had a failing keyboard. The computers are both from the same manufacturer, but otherwise substantially different. In short circuits, a computer can be secure, but your privacy may still be at risk. You might be surprised by how little information is needed to uniquely identify an individual. Usually, I'm not a fan of percussive maintenance, but sometimes it does get the job done. And 20 years ago, VHS players and tapes weren't yet dead, but they were fading fast. Is April Fool's Day really a good day to think about buying a new computer? Actually, the thinking came some weeks before the 1st of April. My primary computer was nearly 7 years old, and it won't run Windows 11. My wife's computer was 5 years old, underpowered, and won't run Windows 11. The keyboard on hers was failing, so it was time to replace both systems. Most companies replace computers assigned to employees every 3 to 5 years, so the timing was right for both of us. Today I'm talking about computers that run Windows. Mac OS users have limited choices for hardware, so Macs are not included, nor are Chromebooks or computers that run Linux. Because Microsoft Windows is the dominant operating system for home and office computers, that's the only focus today. This account is highly subjective, exploring how my wife and I selected our computers. Our choices are far less important than the process By the way, here's a spoiler. Both of our new computers are from Lenovo. No company is inherently better than any of the others. They all make powerful high-end computers, and most also manufacture limited low-end computers. So it's important to look beyond the brand. There are a dozen or so big manufacturers and hundreds of smaller shops that build custom desktop machines. Notebook computers are more common now, so if that's what you're looking for, you'll be limited to fewer than a dozen manufacturers. Acer, Dell, Hewlett-Packard, Lenovo, Microsoft, Toshiba. The guys you've all heard about. Phyllis now has a Lenovo ThinkPad X1 Extreme Generation 3, and I have a Lenovo ThinkPad P15 Generation 2 mobile workstation. Maybe you're wondering why both computers are from Lenovo, and why we didn't choose the same model. It comes down to how we use the computers. Why Lenovo? Over the past 30 years, we have owned computers from Toshiba, Dell, Lenovo, and a couple of others. We have both had acceptable experiences with Lenovo, and the company offers decent support most of the time. I have an antique Toshiba computer that continues to run after nearly 15 years, but Phyllis had a bad experience with a Toshiba computer. I like the idea of using the same vendor for both of our computers, so Lenovo was the choice, and again, that was totally subjective. The components that make up the computer should be matched to the user's needs. Phyllis's computer has an Intel Core i7 CPU. Mine has an Intel Core i9 CPU. Her primary uses are email, web browsing, and games, with a little photo editing thrown in. My computer includes all of those uses, but it also extends to high-powered photo and video editing, website design, and audio production. The use cases are also reflected in memory installed on the computers. Mine has 32 gigabytes of RAM. That's half what my previous computer had. And I decided I really didn't need 64 gigabytes of memory. And Phyllis's has 8 gigabytes of RAM. That's the same as in her previous computer. If either computer needs additional RAM, more can be installed easily. The CPUs for both of our computers were substantial upgrades. Phyllis's previous computer had an Intel Core i5, mine had an Intel Core i7. Low-priced processors such as AMD's Athlon and Intel's Celeron are generally best avoided unless you're on a strict budget or have very limited needs. Virtually all computers include integrated graphics on the motherboard, but many also include a dedicated graphics processing unit, or GPU. If you do a lot of photo editing, or video editing, the GPU is important, and they're typically made by NVIDIA or AMD. Phyllis's computer came with an NVIDIA GeForce GTX 1650 Max-Q GPU with 4 gigabytes of RAM, That's more than sufficient for games and basic photo editing. The GPU in my computer is an NVIDIA RTX A3000 device with 6GB of RAM, intended for relatively high-end photo and video editing. So would either of our options be right for you? Maybe, but the decision has to depend on what you need. Neither of our computers has a touchscreen. Neither has a fold-back keyboard that converts the notebook computer to a tablet both have fingerprint readers that make logging in easily. Phyllis's computer has a 512 gigabyte disk drive. Mine has a 1 terabyte disk drive. If her computer needs more storage, adding a second M2 drive is relatively easy. Mine already has five external drives. Both of our computers have Thunderbolt connectors, which is something I'd recommend for any computer because they provide fast data transfer rates and also can be used with a dock to power multiple monitors and connect to other devices. Phyllis' previous computer had an optical drive. The new computer had no option to add one. We did add an external USB optical drive, even though optical disks are becoming passé. Because I work occasionally with video files, my computer has an external Blu-ray writer that can also handle standard DVDs and CDs. Probably the most important part of the computer is the screen, because that's how you interact with it all the time. Pay attention to the computer's built-in monitor specifications if you plan to use the computer without a separate monitor. A computer with a 15-inch monitor will be lighter and more portable but the extra weight of a computer with a 17-inch monitor might be an acceptable trade-off for improved legibility. The screen resolution is also important. Higher resolution will produce sharper images, but smaller text. If you plan to use one or more external monitors, the built-in screen is less important. The way I use a computer differs considerably from how Phyllis uses a computer. She holds the computer in her lap and uses the built-in monitor. I attach two 27-inch external monitors and use the computer the way I'd use a regular desktop system. Any notebook computer will have a Wi-Fi adapter and may have an Ethernet connector. The Wi-Fi adapter should support both 2.4 GHz and 5 GHz bands, and it should comply with at least IEEE 802.11n specifications. IEEE, by the way, is the Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers. They set these kinds of specifications. And for the best possible performance, look for a Wi-Fi adapter that complies with IEEE 802.11ax specifications. That's also known as Wi-Fi 6. And what about Windows? The final consideration is the operating system. Even if you prefer to stick with Windows 10 for now, make sure that the new computer will support Windows 11. Microsoft will support Windows 10 only until mid-October 2025. The computer will continue to work after that date and probably will receive security updates, but maintaining an up-to-date system is wise. There's no shortage of options desktop systems are still being made for those who need the most power and absolutely no portability. Notebook systems can have screens ranging in size from less than 12 inches to nearly 20 inches. There's a wide range of CPUs and GPUs. Memory ranges from 4 to 128 gigabytes generally. Storage from as little as 32 gigabytes to 2 terabytes. If you know that you'll never take the computer with you on a business trip or vacation, and there's room on your desk for a standard desktop computer, you can save money by not ignoring that option. Also, if you need the absolute best video performance, you'll need a desktop computer that has room for a $1,500 video subsystem. Or more. These things are expensive. In that case, you won't save money, but you will get the performance that's not available with any notebook computer. This all goes back to an earlier recommendation to select the hardware and the software that's right for you. Happy shopping! If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, In short circuits, perhaps you have participated in an online survey or some form of research that promised your privacy is safe because they anonymize all personal information. Although it's true the organization you're dealing with will remove or otherwise obscure your information, your privacy isn't as complete as you might think. Anonymized data is typically combined with anonymized data from other participants, and the combined data, a gumbo of sorts, is used by the organization that collected it. But they may also share that information with other organizations. No problem, right? After all, your data is just part of that data gumbo with information from hundreds or maybe thousands of other users, and your personal information has been removed. In fact, that anonymized data gumbo can be picked apart, and often there's enough information in the mix that information can be tracked back to you. Nearly 90% of Americans can be uniquely identified with no more information than their gender, date of birth, and five-digit postal code. And this isn't new. A research paper called Simple Demographics Often Identify People Uniquely by Latanya Sweeney at Carnegie Mellon University documented the capability in 2022 years ago. If you're interested in reading the full report, which is both long and data heavy, you'll find it on the Data Privacy Lab website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. So this is something to consider the next time you encounter a request from a company for your data. The company may well have a valid reason for wanting your information and may sincerely make an effort to keep your data private. But anything you reveal in private may turn out to be not so private. And keep in mind that security and privacy are two very different things. Keeping bad actors off your computer is a good thing, and it can be accomplished by enabling an antivirus application, a firewall, spam filters, anti-phishing protections, a VPN, and more. So the computer is secure, but there may be portholes that allow people to learn about you. Some computer security firms sell information about you, too. AVG Antivirus, which is owned by Avast, can sell research and browser history data to advertisers in order to monetize their free antivirus product. It's not a secret. AVG puts the information in its privacy policy statement. I quote, To be able to offer our products and services for free, we serve third-party ads of advertising companies in our products for mobile devices. To enable the ad, we enabled a software development kit provided by an advertising company into the product, which then collects personal data in order to personalize ads for you. They Try to make that sound like an advantage, eh? And of course, there's Google's ad network. Connections are encrypted between you and Google, but that means little because Google's trackers are on three-quarters of the most popular websites. These allow Google to track users across the web and serve targeted ads. Secure? Yes. Private? Absolutely not. Actually, I'm a non-violent person, but sometimes bad design becomes sufficiently annoying that a violent act seems the only solution. This is about bad design of an electronic device. And by violence, I don't mean an unthinking act like throwing the device out a second-story window. The manager of a computer repair shop once told me about a man who brought his badly damaged computer in for repair. Eventually, he admitted that he had literally thrown the computer out a window. Percussive maintenance rarely works, and extreme percussive maintenance never does. And why does it always seem that it's a man who tries something this stupid and illogical? I claim that I'm not a violent person. For example, one of our cats cornered a mouse sometime in the 1990s. I captured the mouse and showed it out of the house. We've had two bats take up residence in the house over the years, and I've used a gloved hand to capture them when they were sleeping and return them to the outside. A few weeks ago, a worm was trying to make its way across the driveway. Clearly, it wasn't going to succeed, so I moved it to the grass. So, nonviolent, generally. But there are exceptions. An old Samsung disc player that's attached to the bedroom television has some built-in smart features, but a lot of dumb design. If I want to watch something on Netflix, I can accomplish that with the television itself or with a Roku streaming device. But the Samsung remote control has a big Netflix button that's the exact size and shape of the play button, and it's located directly below the play button. Remote controls should generally be operated by touch, I think, and it's all too easy to tap the Netflix button instead of the play button. So after fast-forwarding through a scene or the opening credits, pressing Netflix instead of play switches from the disc to the disc player's Netflix connection. That would be annoying if I could switch back to the disc by simply pressing the play button. Now, occasionally that does work, but usually I have to turn the player off and restart it. That means I have to watch the unskippable sections on the disc again and then find my way back to where I was. I had tried using super glue to cement the button in place, but the button is made from a material that doesn't work with super glue. The residue from the glue is still on the case, but pressing the button was as easy as ever. After one particularly annoying event, I decided to use an X-Acto knife to cut away the surface of the Netflix button, Although that worked, I inadvertently trimmed off a little bit of the home button, too. And then I wondered if I might be able to simply remove the Netflix button entirely. Using a small thin-blade screwdriver as a spudger, I levered the button out and tossed it in the trash. Problem solved. (laughs) You won't need a spudger or an X-Acto knife to access 20 years ago on the TechBiter Worldwide website. This week, we look at VHS players and tapes. Fading fast in 2002. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blynn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session.